as Luke calls it in Acts chapter 1. Luke, of course, wrote these two accounts of the book of Luke and the book of Acts, describing the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ and then the ministry of those who learned from Jesus Christ, uh, the apostles that he left in this world in order to carry out his purposes of starting the church and of proclaiming the gospel to the nations. In Luke chapter 1, we've been looking at some preliminary events that are leading up to the birth and the ministry of Jesus Christ. And before Jesus is born, we learn about the birth of the one who would go before him, namely John, who comes to be known as John the Baptist. And that is what we are looking at in Luke chapter 1 when we get to verses 57 through the last verse of the chapter, which is verse 80. We're going to look at this across uh, two different Sundays, and but we're going to read the whole text this morning before we begin. So if you would follow along as I read Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 57. Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed his great mercy toward her, and they were rejoicing with her. And it happened that on the eighth day, when they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to call him Zacharias after his father. But his mother answered and said, No, indeed, but he shall be called John. And they said to her, There's no one among your relatives who is called by that name. And they made signs to his father as to what he wanted him called. And he asked for a tablet and wrote as follows, His name is John. And they were all astonished. And at once his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he began to speak in praise of God. Fear came on all those living around them. And all these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea. All who heard them kept them in mind, saying, What then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was certainly with him. And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit. And prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit, and he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. In the early days of the Pacific War in World War II, the United States military, under the command of General Douglas MacArthur, uh, left the territory of the Philippines. And of course, he uttered, as this happened, his famous words, you know what they are, I shall what? Return. I shall return. 
The time between when that happened and some years later when he made good on his promise was a very unpleasant time, of course, for the citizens of the Philippines. And yet what a blessing when the promise was made good and when this military, this same military, returned to redeem, to set free this people who had been under the oppression of conquerors for some years. Well, this length of time and uh, this, the scale and the scope of waiting is dwarfed by what Israel as a nation would have been experiencing at the time that Zacharias issues his prophecy, that Elizabeth gives birth to a son, that the angel Gabriel comes to tell Elizabeth of what is going to happen. And the events that take place that arrive in the birth of John indicate something. They indicate that God is making good on his promise, that he cares about his people, and that they have not been abandoned, but rather that all the waiting is now going to be over. That all the waiting is not for nothing, but God is fulfilling his promise. And that God is returning, if you will, to visit his people. Earlier in the chapter, Gabriel the angel came and promised to Elizabeth that she would have a son. We saw this in verse 13. We hear uh, him tell Zacharias, Your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. He says, You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he says, He will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Well, Zacharias did not believe the promise. He wanted to know for certain as if the word of God could be made more certain. And so he was disciplined with the, uh, with the removal of his ability to speak or even to hear until all of this would come to pass. Verse 20, he says, You shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. Well, in the course of time, Elizabeth, his wife, does become pregnant, and now these things are coming to be fulfilled in this time, in the proper time. And so we learn today about what happened when that came to pass, when that promise is fulfilled. This is the heart of this passage. God's promise to Zacharias and Elizabeth is fulfilled. And what we find on display is the significance of the birth of this one, John the Baptist. And what it means not only for this elderly couple who are being personally blessed by this, but what it means for God's dealings with his people. What does this mean about God and his activity and his faithfulness to his promises? What does it mean for God as a savior and for God as someone who acts toward his people. This is what this text will put on display. And so in this text, the activity surrounding the birth of John the Baptist teaches us about the salvation that God brings in Jesus Christ. Again, the activity surrounding the birth of John the Baptist teaches us about the salvation that God brings 
in Jesus Christ. And we can really break this up into two parts. Um, we will find, we'll learn about John's birth and then Zacharias's words in response to his birth. Uh, but looking at John's birth, what we're going to do is to view it from the perspective of the uniqueness of John's birth or how special John's birth was and the events surrounding it, the uniqueness of John's birth. And there are a number of ways in which this birth was particularly special that showed how God is doing something special through this one individual person and the fact that he is doing something special at all. The fact that God is at work, God is visiting his people, God is making good on his promises, God is coming to save and to redeem. That's what John's birth indicates and it does so through a number of unusual things and unusual activities that take place surrounding his birth. Uh, the first way in which John's birth was unique is that it was merciful toward a barren mother. It was merciful toward a barren mother. Verse 57, the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth and she gave birth to a son. Mary, the mother of Jesus, has departed from Elizabeth's home. She's been there for three months. She showed up in the middle of the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. And then it says in verse 56, Mary stayed with her about three months and then returned to her home. Elizabeth then gives birth to this child. She is no longer in hiding as she was before. And the glorious fulfillment of God's promise to her has now come to pass. And others hear about it. Her neighbors, verse 58, and her relatives heard that the Lord had shown, had displayed his great mercy toward her. This is a, an interesting way of phrasing this. It literally is that he made great his mercy toward her. He magnified his mercy toward her. Now it is true that in every good situation, um, and of course, especially in situations like this, it is God's greatness that is to be on display. God's character, God's attributes. He is the one whose greatness should be in view. And we should always look in every situation to say, when we're looking to praise someone or something, we should look to recognize the greatness of God in that. We recognize that God's creatures do things that are relatively great compared to other people, compared to us, and we're impressed and we're even in awe on many occasions. But we should look when good things happen to see the greatness of God himself squarely in view. Sometimes when this happens, uh, God's greatness is praised in general. For example, in verse 46 and 47, Mary says, My soul exalts the Lord or magnifies the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. She just speaks in general about the greatness of God. She is exalting and magnifying him. Now, this isn't to say there aren't specific things in view for this, but she just makes this general statement up front. I am praising God, and we can do this. But other times, it is a particular attribute of God that he showcases. And in this case, it is his mercy. He is making his, his mercy great. He's showing just how great his mercy is. And we come across this all over the pages of Scripture where particular attributes of God, particular types of activity that he does out of those attributes are on display. And we should not only just say that God is great in general, but we should say why. We should identify why. God reveals himself to us not simply as the God who says, praise me because I'm great, though he does. But he shows us in a number of different ways why he is so great. And so every time we see one of these, we should take the opportunity to glorify God and to magnify him and to recognize the fact that he is great in these wonderful ways. 
And here it is for his kindness and compassion after giving her a son after all these years and even decades of barrenness. This was then an act of mercy. And Elizabeth had seen it this way even from the beginning. Verse 25, she says, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me when he looked uh, in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. He saw her, he had compassion upon her, and he acted. And now her relatives and her neighbors see it this way as well. The Lord has displayed his great mercy toward her. And so her circumstances have changed entirely. Entirely. She was formerly barren, but now what? She has a son. And not only on an individual level, but on a community level. Formerly, she was disgraced. She was under reproach. This is what she says in verse 25. To take away my disgrace among men. When we were looking at this passage, we recognized that there are things that sometimes uh, bring us shame and that have a negative reputation for us, even when we haven't done anything wrong. And those are very difficult things to endure. Here, this changes dramatically as her neighbors and her relatives see what God has done for her. And they, they go all the way from one end of the spectrum of she is under reproach to now she is being recognized as one that God has shown his great mercy toward. And not only do they recognize this, but they actually jump in with her and they rejoice with her. Just consider the reversal of circumstances. What an incredible thing. Instead of bearing this burden, what do people think about me? How do they view me? I want to have a child, but I can't. I'm in this circumstance and I don't like it. Everybody's thinking these things about me. And instead of that, it is everyone coming to rejoice with her. What mercy it is on God's behalf, not only to give her that child, but even to bring this blessing of community joy that is centered around what God has done for her. There are some things for us to take away even from what is happening here. Do we recognize when God is merciful to us? And of course, we are very unlikely to have something of this exact nature happen to us individually, but God is certainly merciful to us in many, many ways. It is that accident that you could have gotten in but just barely missed. It is that, uh, that need that you had provided for right at the last minute and you didn't know how it was going to happen. It's that person who calls you or sends you a message right when you need help or right when you need someone to talk to. It is when someone shows grace to you and you don't deserve it. Do we recognize God's mercy toward us? And do we rejoice at God's mercy toward us? Do we actually say, this is a good thing? In fact, I sometimes wonder if we can rejoice at all. There's almost this culture where it, is, it seems improper or, or uh, just kind of not cool to rejoice at things and to be excited at things and to kind of take everything at a distance and to play it cool and to say, you know, that's no big deal. Yeah, that's great. I'm very glad that we have that. But not to get excited about anything except maybe your favorite team scoring points. This is about the only thing we seem to get really excited about these days. And we ought instead to rejoice at God's mercy toward us and the things that he does for us. And not only that, but we should join in with others in their joy also. This is commended here, at least implicitly, where her neighbors are coming and rejoicing with her for what God had done for her. And rather than defaulting to the type of reaction we often have, which would be jealousy at other people getting things that we have, or that we don't have, rather, we ought to rejoice with them and follow the instruction of Romans 12, which says we are to rejoice with those who rejoice 
and to weep with those who weep. Joining in with the appropriate emotions of other people. And though we can never feel them in the exact same way as what they're going through, we can join with them in the category of what their experience of that is. And we can rejoice with them. And we should. And we should praise God as he gives these things, as he shows mercy. So she was formerly barren. Then they recognized that God showed mercy. And John's birth was unique in how it showed God's mercy in this particular way. It was also unique in that it was signified by a special name. It was signified by a special name. Now the scene of his naming is on the day of his circumcision. This is about a week later, eight days to be exact. And they bring him to be circumcised on the eighth day. This was a Jewish tradition Uh, That really was more than a tradition. It was a command that went all the way back to God's instructions to Abraham in the 17th chapter of the book of Genesis. God had already made a covenant with Abraham, as we'll see. But then when God made good on the promise uh, to give him a son... Actually, forgive me, this is even before his son was born, but this was, uh, this was before Isaac was born. Uh, he was told to circumcise every male in his household on the eighth day in perpetuity. When they were born, they were supposed to have this happen on the eighth day. And this came to be a distinctly uh, Jewish tradition and Israelite tradition to the point where they would refer to the other nations as uncircumcised. For example, in, uh, in 1 Samuel 17, David scoffs at Goliath and said, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would defy the armies of the living God? So this is an obedience to God's command, a sign of the ongoing, at least formal adherence on the part of the Jews to the traditions laid down by Moses in the Pentateuch. They, his neighbors, or their neighbors and relatives, or whoever else happened to be present when they went to do this, were going to call him Zacharias after his father. In fact, it indicates literally this is basically what they were already doing. They are, they're calling him Zacharias. They're just assuming that this is going to be his name. But Elizabeth steps in. His mother answered and said emphatically, No, indeed, but his name shall be called John. This is, for Elizabeth, a matter of, um, in some ways, small, but nonetheless real obedience and faith. God had sent a message in uh, Luke 1.13. You will give him the name John. Zacharias was told, you will give him the name John. Somehow between then and now, this message had been communicated to Elizabeth that she was supposed to name him John. And she says, hey, uh, his name is going to be John. Zacharias can't speak up, but she does and she stands up for it. Now, what does this name mean? Uh, The name John, there's nothing in particular that's special about this name per se. It was not a unique name. It wasn't the only person named John. And uh, when it comes to some names, the name is special based upon the intrinsic meaning of the name. So there are some names in the Bible like this. Uh, Moses. Why was he named Moses? Because he was drawn out of the water. Uh, Why is Isaac named Isaac? It has to do with the laughter of his mother when she was told that she would become pregnant as an old woman and so on. Uh, But this name is special not because of what the name itself means but because of its origin. It was given by God and to name him John was to say God has a special purpose for him and I'm not just making this up but he has told me this and I'm believing his word about what he's supposed to be. 
And so for Zacharias and for Elizabeth to name him John would be in one sense an obvious act of obedience, after all, who would defy God in this way, but nonetheless one that they had to make and had to make in the face of at least some pressure and some confusion among the people around them. It would have been easy in one sense to simply name him Zacharias or something else, especially when there were objections from other people. But they stood their ground and they did what God had said. They named him John. Well, the crowd doesn't understand and they don't like it, so they push back. In verse 61 and 62, they object. And they do so in two ways. They said to her, first of all, uh, this is a new name. There's no one among your relatives who is called by that name. Now, it, it seems um, that Elizabeth had to uh, face some objection in, in an unusual way. This would seem strange to us that they wouldn't just accept her, uh, her answer. I mean, can you imagine going into, let's say, a... Uh, hospital room today or at home or wherever somebody is born wherever a child is born and you walk in and the mother says this is the name and you say well I don't know about that Uh, are you sure that you are going to give him that name it's just assumed that a mother has the right to do this but uh, evidently not so here for a number of reasons one of which may include the fact that the father would have been uh, been seen to ultimately have the right to do this and when you couple that with the idea of having an unusual name Zacharias not being able to speak they push back and they say I'm not sure that this is actually what's going to happen but they said there's no one in your relatives who is called by that name And as if it's not enough to argue with her and tell her what she can and can't name her own child, uh, they then ask his mute father what he wants to name him. So verse 62, they made signs to his father as to what he wanted him called. So they're looking at Elizabeth and she says, name him John. And they're like, I don't know about that. You know, you can't, there's nobody in your family by that name. And so they look at Zacharias and say, you know, you, you guys on the same page? And they're pointing to him. Why? Well, again, presumably because not only could he not speak, but also he couldn't hear. This is why they have to make signs to him instead of simply speaking to him and telling him this. So they made signs to his father as to what he wanted him called. And they might have thought, like sometimes happens with kids who get an answer they don't like from one parent and then they go to the other to get a different answer for something they want to do. And sometimes it works. They might have thought that this would be the case here. Hey, Zacharias, aren't you going to get your wife in line after all? Nobody's got that name in your family. John, what is that? You're Zacharias. Don't you want your son named after you? And he asked for a tablet. Uh, a wax-covered tablet of wood is what this would have generally been in those days. And he writes down, his name is John. In fact, John is his name, is the order. Emphatically writing down, this is his name. This isn't even just, he's going to be called John. I want him to be called John. He says, John is his name. That's it. It's over. End of the story. And they, it says, were all astonished. They were all astonished at this. These are amazing things that are happening here. And uh, his parents are following in obedience to the Lord. Here, Zacharias is following Elizabeth, acting in faith and Uh, At the same time as this happens, the timeline ends for his discipline. Because chapter 1 says you're going to be unable to speak until when? The day when these things take place. So the timeline runs out on the discipline. And Zacharias is now acting in faith and naming him according to the promise. And something happens 
verse 64, shows us another unique attribute of John's birth. It was followed by, we'll call this miraculous unmuting. Miraculous unmuting. He is no longer mute. At once his mouth was open and his tongue is loose, just as God has said. And appropriately, the first words to come out of his mouth were, it says, he began to speak in praise of God. So as soon as he is, uh, gives this name, God fulfills his promise to let him speak again. Well, in addition to him being able to speak, this birth is also witnessed by astonished onlookers. Astonished onlookers. It says, verse 63, they were all astonished. And then not only when he begins that, but uh, excuse me, not only that, but when he begins to speak in praise of God, uh, look at what happens in verse 65 in reaction to all of these things. Fear came on all those living around them, and all these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea. There is a lot of spreading of what is happening here. Everybody who hears about it, this is all through the hill country of Judea. This is not just relegated to a few people. Notice what has happened. A son has been born to an old barren woman. A name has been given in a strange way. A mute man has been made to speak. And they start to get the impression something is going on here with this child. Something is wrong about him. This is not just a crazy old man, you know, all of a sudden having a, a child and naming him something different. But something is going on. God is involved in this. You start to add up the pieces and you say, you know, maybe I could write off this woman saying this, or maybe I could write off him naming him in this way. But all of this together, and the people are, they're afraid. They say something serious is happening. Something big is happening. And we need to take this seriously. There's a sense in which they say, we need to get our act together. We need to make sure that we are sober-minded about this. Fear came on all those living around them, and everybody is talking about them. This is good gossip. They're just talking about all the stuff that happens. They're reporting it to everybody. Everybody knows about it. What do you think is going on here? What is happening? And that's exactly what they're doing. All who heard them kept them in mind saying, what then will this child turn out to be? So you have them asking questions. You have them wondering. And not only that, but this isn't just a fad that goes away after a while. It's not just a temporary thing, but they kept them in mind. And what you have among other things is this record of what happened becoming embedded within this community of people. So that it's not just one person's word. Or it's not just John growing up and saying, Here, this is what happened. This is all of these people in this area testifying to the fact that this isn't some crazy old man and woman making up a story about having a baby in their old age. But this is a community full of witnesses who knew that these things happened without really even understanding all that was going to pass from that. Which only adds to the credibility So here's an entire region who heard about these things, talked about these things, remembered these things, and they had a question in their minds, what then will this child turn out to be? Well, we already know the answer from chapter 1 to some degree, and we already know even more than that because most of us have read chapter 3 and beyond, and we know what happened with John, but they didn't. And so this is a kind of rhetorical question in which asks in one sense, uh, this child is special. What is that specialness going to look like it's simply saying this is an unusual child and God is with him and that in fact is Luke's assessment the hand of the Lord was certainly with him Luke recognized this and this is the case as he grew up as well well Luke 
uh, lets us know about one more thing that surrounds this birth, which is what starts the next section. And it is this, that it was interpreted by divine prophecy. This birth was interpreted by divine prophecy. Verse 67, his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. This is really the start of the next section, but it helps us to see that Zacharias not only had his own perspective about this, but that he's bringing to bear God's perspective. What does God say about John's birth? What is God's commentary on John's birth? This is not just a story about a child. It's not just a story about a miracle. Zacharias is now prophesying about the prophet, about his son. And he is saying, this is what his birth signifies. This is what he's going to be, and this is what it means for God's people, and this is what it means for God's activity now that this has come to pass. So his father Zacharias is filled with the Holy Spirit, and not to be outdone by his wife Elizabeth, he now has this happen to him and begins speaking as well. And his words give us the answer to the question of the community in verse 66. What then will this child turn out to be? Well, Zacharias is about to tell us. So let's wade in a little bit and start to look at some of what Zacharias says. And then we will cover next week what we don't get to today. Uh, we hear in this commentary, of course, an inspired prophecy on what God has started to do and what he will ultimately do. There are a number of things that he talks about in here, but a lot of it is spoken of kind of in the past tense. You may notice this here, uh, verse 68, he has visited us and accomplished redemption. Verse 69, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Uh, here he is saying, this actually has happened. And this is not to say that by the time John is born, this is all already done. There's much still to be played out. But what he's saying is that this is so certain that it will happen that I'm going to go ahead and speak of it in the past tense. God has done this. This is what John's birth means, is that he has acted in this ways. In, in other words, he is about to bring all of this to pass by virtue of John being born. So what did John's birth signify then? Well, the Spirit-inspired words indicate two main things. First of all, the redemption of Israel. The redemption of Israel. Now we will find, and this is important to understand about Luke, and this is one of the wonderful things about Luke, we will find as we go through the gospel according to Luke that there is a huge focus on the Gentiles, on the nations, on those that are not Jews, and on Christ's message of salvation coming to them. And this is very surprising to a lot of the people who were part of the nation of Israel. They just couldn't believe it. They couldn't fathom that this would be the case. And they were offended by it. And they were very angry. In fact, Jesus' first encounter preaching the word of God to people in the synagogue in his hometown gets him uh, attacked for stating things like this. So it is true that there is a huge focus upon the Gentiles and the salvation coming to people like you and me. To people from the nations who are not just from this one nation of Israel. At the same time though, this does not override or eliminate a core truth at the heart of other places in Luke, such as in this message, which is that God is also dealing with this particular nation of Israel. And then, it's important for us to understand that he is dealing with them in all the ways that he promised. The problem in Israel's understanding of God's salvation of them and God's redemption of them was not that they believed some of the wrong things about God 
blessing them and redeeming them in a national way. The problem is that they missed out on the vital components of what was required to be a participant in that. And they missed out on the spiritual component that would be necessary and what it would take in terms of the Messiah having not only to come in glory, but to come in humility and to suffer and to die. But Israel is said here to be redeemed. He says he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. This redemption is spiritual, but it is also more than that. It is spiritual and situational. God redeems Israel from every difficulty. We even sometimes sing the song, he will free his Israel from all their sin and sorrow. Their sorrow. Everything that is bad about their circumstances in accordance with what we'll see his promises in the Old Testament. And so redemption will be, or he kind of puts it this way here, has been accomplished for his people. And this is who he is referring to here when he says his people. That's not always what God means throughout all of scripture when he talks about his people, but it is in this particular case, in this context. He is, after all, verse 68, the Lord God of Israel. He refers to raising up a a horn of salvation for us in the household of David, his servant. Verse 72, to show mercy toward our fathers. This is who he's talking about here. He is talking about redemption for his people, namely, in this case, the nation of Israel. Again, there are other places, such as 1 Peter chapter 2, where that type of language of being God's people is applied to people outside of the nation of Israel as well. Such that God's people, as we understand it today, includes many from Israel. And in sometimes it refers to the nation of Israel as a whole for what God will do for them in the future. But it also includes those who have come to faith in Christ. And so he says... For example, he will call those who were not my people, my people, 1 Peter chapter 2. Taking a reference to a promise about what he would do for Israel, bringing them from rejection to acceptance. And then he says, I'm also doing that for Gentiles who didn't used to be believers, but now they are. God speaks about his people in these various ways. But nonetheless, here he specifies it and says, I am talking about this nation. Zechariah has this understanding in his mind, and we need to have this in our minds as well for what he understood, whatever ways this also might apply on top of that. So here he says he has accomplished redemption for this nation. When we come to this then, one might even say that the most significant thing about the birth of John really isn't even about John at all. It's about what God is doing through him, which is indicated through John's birth. So he brings about the redemption of Israel. How does he do this? Well, first of all, by means of God's visitation. By means of God's visitation. It says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. We read in Psalm 72, uh, blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone works wonders. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And may the whole earth be filled with his glory. We read in Psalm 103, David's instruction to himself. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. This is what we ought to do, to bless the name of God. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. And in this case, it is because he has done something. He has visited us. 
This idea of visiting refers to God taking action to, uh, in a sense, draw near to his people. It's as if he was off at a distance. He knows what's going on, but he comes near to provide help. Sometimes visitation implies judgment. In this case, here it actually is that he is coming to help them and to bring benefit to them. Now, in this case as well, he doesn't just visit in the metaphorical sense, but God himself comes in the person of Jesus Christ to actually, in the flesh, visit his people. But we find that this is exactly what God is doing later on in the book of Luke. For example, we find in Luke 7, 16, fear gripped them all. They began glorifying God and saying, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. But get this. After all of this, toward the end of the book, it's going to be a very sad outcome, at least for a time, because in Luke 19, 44, Jesus is speaking to this nation he says they will of their conquerors that are coming they will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation why is israel going to remain in an ultimately unredeemed state even after the coming of john and jesus christ that exists to this very day that has not yet changed because they didn't recognize the time of their visitation. The Messiah came, and they said, we don't want him. That's not him. He doesn't, he's not like what we want. We want something else. We want somebody else. Surely that's not him. We're not going to listen to him. We're not going to have him rule over us. But God did visit. Make no mistake. And what a blessing that it is to know that God draws near. God cares. God approaches his people and comes to see them. If you were in prison... And you were alone. What a blessing it would be for someone to come and to see you. And to spend time with you. And more than that, to help you. To actually work to get you out of that situation. This is what God did. Through John the Baptist, he demonstrates that this is what he's done. He then redeems Israel not only by visiting, just the general statement. But he does so through the horn from David's house. The horn from David's house. He's not talking about some type of brass instrument here. Of course, he's talking about uh, this idea. The picture is a, a literal horn, and the metaphor has to do with strength. We learned about this a little bit in the book of Daniel, didn't we? Where you had animals, and the horn that was on those animals rec- uh, represented this great ruler or great strength. You had the little horn, who would be the Antichrist. You had uh, this large horn on the goat of um, Uh, of Alexander the Great who would come later on and so here a horn just refers to this idea it refers to power Psalm 18 2 says the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer my God my rock in whom I take refuge my shield and the horn of my salvation my stronghold he is the one who is strong who brings strength Hannah appropriately enough a predecessor to Elizabeth, who also was barren for some time and then miraculously given a son, says in 1 Samuel 2.10, The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king and will exalt the horn of his anointed. It's clear what Zacharias is referring to here. Same thing is in Psalm 132.17. There I will cause the horn of David to spring forth. So here... What he's describing is a particular individual ruler who will come forth one day out of the line of David and his dynasty. The Messiah. The Messiah. Um, We know 
much more that Jesus Christ is in fact that Messiah based upon what the New Testament has laid out for us. But this was the hope that led up to this point. And Zacharias is saying not only is there a, a prophet who is coming, but this means that God is bringing this ruler. Um, now at this point, it's important for us to understand something that as we'll see in a moment in verse uh, 73, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father. God is making good on that promise to Abraham to bless the nation, to give them what God had promised to them. And one of the ways that he does this, one of the ways that he brings about this promised blessing to Abraham is through the Davidic covenant, God's covenant with David. Uh, the other main way that he uses, the other main channel to bring this about, and we'll see in a few, uh, in a few verses later as well, is through the new covenant. But these two things, God made a new covenant with Israel, or he said he's going to make a new covenant with Israel, Jeremiah 31. He promised that in those words. And then he made a covenant with David of a, a ruler. And it is true then that God promises to bring about all these blessings to Israel, Abraham's physical descendants, and to all the nations of the earth, not just in general through a people overall, but through appointing a king over them who would carry out God's will and who would enforce and mediate all of those blessings to the nation and then through that nation Israel to all the nations all over the world. And the way that he would do that is through the individual ruler who would come from the house of David. We, come, or we have come to understand this as the Messiah. And so Zechariah says that this is what is coming through John and through the one who would follow him. God is going to bring about salvation and redemption through a Davidic ruler. He recognizes this. And so he says he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. He goes on to say that this uh, re uh, redemption is going to come in accordance with divine prophecy. Verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. He is simply recognizing that what is happening here is not something new or surprising. He might be surprised that it's happening to him. He might be surprised of when it's happening. But he's not surprised that it's happening because God has already said all of this is going to come to pass. And so it is in keeping with divine prophecy. And then... We should note in verse 71 that he redeems Israel and this redemption involves physical rescue. Physical rescue. Um, he notes here, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. There is here a specific kind of salvation that is in view. Now, you don't have to read far in the book of Luke to understand that the salvation that God gives is rooted in the forgiveness of sins. And that this is a vital component of our salvation. In fact, you could be part of a nation that was, uh, that was protected and preserved, for example, as many who went into the promised land for Israel were. And yet they were not saved because they did not have their sins forgiven. They didn't, they didn't trust Christ. They didn't trust the Lord. And they didn't confessed their need of salvation, and so they didn't receive the forgiveness of sins. Uh, so that's a vital foundation for actually the, the fullness of salvation. But uh, here he is saying, I am coming to you as a nation, and I'm going to deliver you from the hands of hostile people, 
hostile other people, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Uh, Some of us, I believe, have been tricked into thinking something to the effect that wanting this kind of a rescue is somehow unspiritual. And I think it might be because we're told to endure suffering and hardship as Christians. And we kind of just think that that has to be the only attitude that we have, which is to endure that difficulty. And on top of that, we, uh, we often think about the ramifications of what it would mean to be delivered from the hostility of other people. Because in many cases, the only way for them to no longer be hostile toward us is for them to no longer be around. And yet this is exactly what the New Testament even tells us that we as Christians should want. We should long for the salvation of other people while at the same time saying, God, please give us relief from the hostility toward us. So, for example, in 2 Thessalonians 1 verses 6 and 7, it says, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. It is right and good for us to not only be willing to endure suffering as an act of obedience and trust in God. Not only to long for the salvation of everyone who is hostile to Christ that they might turn and be saved. But also to want to be able to not be attacked anymore. We have uh, a great blessing in our own day of uh, not being uh, openly attacked the way that many have throughout history. Um, People being attacked for their views on communion. People being attacked for their views on the deity of Christ. Suffering and being killed uh, by by those kinds of people is a great blessing. Anytime the church doesn't. Uh, doesn't have to suffer through that. But Israel was in a situation where they were under the authority of a, a conquering nation. And this had been the case for hundreds of years. They had never been restored to the previous independent rule that was theirs before Babylon came and conquered them 600 years before this. And so when he says salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, they might look around at the Roman Empire and say, are you talking about them? Are you talking about these people who are going to conquer us if we try to establish our own independent thing the way that God has laid out for us? Are you talking about that? Are you talking about people who are going to conquer us at a, on a whim? This is what he's saying. Salvation from all who hate us. How much hostility has Israel faced throughout their history leading up to this point where they are attacked by the Canaanites around them, by their attack by the other powers around them. At the same time, it's important for us to remember that this redemption, physical though it may be in part, is never apart from the repentance of the nation. And this is why Jesus says all these terrible things are still going to happen to you even after I'm gone. I came through town and told you, I'm here to save you. And you said, we don't want you. And so they will be continuing under hostile enemies until such time as they do repent. Until God pours out on them, as he says in the Old Testament, a spirit of supplication that they would pray to God and they would turn to him as a nation. That's not apart from this either. And we're going to see this in verse 77 when he talks about giving to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of sins. But nonetheless... Zacharias rejoices because he understands what this means. That at some point, 
God is now showing he is making good on his promise. And what a gracious God he is. Having done this for Zacharias, there's every reason for him to trust him. And us seeing this here and seeing all the more that he has done in bringing Christ, there's all the more reason for us to trust him. And we ought to do that. Well, next time we'll see the rest of what John's birth indicates for us and for our salvation. For now, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, thank you that you have uh, shown us your kindness and grace and your mercy in bringing us in Christ to a salvation that many missed at this time. Thank you that you've shown mercy. Thank you that you've redeemed us by Christ's blood. And we pray that we would honor him accordingly. We pray in his name. Amen.